The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to the new episode of the Brooklyn Vegan Podcast. I'm Brooklyn Vegan editor Andrew Sacker. So we recently launched this podcast with a new interview with Joyce Manor, but this episode actually has a slightly older interview. Last year, we had a live stream show on Vans Channel 66, where we did interviews with musicians, but the show only aired once live and was never rebroadcast. Well, Vans was nice enough to give us back those interviews, and we're going to be gradually rolling them out on this podcast alongside our newer content. This episode is with Jeff Rickley, singer of Thursday, and it was recorded right when their breakthrough classic album Full Collapse was celebrating its 20th anniversary. Now, Thursday are actually in the midst of a 21st anniversary tour for that record. This interview was done last year, and Jeff reflected on the album. He talked about what a big breakthrough it was, not just for the band, but also for the sort of emo and post-hardcore scene overall. Talked about what went into making the record, what made it so unique. He also just kind of reflected on the whole history of Thursday, from their early days up to their initial breakup, to their reunion in the 2010s, and what they're up to now. Uh, he talked about the emo and post-hardcore scene overall, the way it went from the underground to the mainstream in the early 2000s, and what a big surprise that was for everyone involved, including Thursday. And he also kind of talked about the revival that happened in the 2010s and the way the perspective has changed over the years. He talked about other bands he's worked with, including My Chemical Romance and Touche Amore, and a lot of other stuff. It was a really great chat, and if you missed it the first time around, I'm very excited for you to hear it. So, here it is. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to see you, Andrew. Yeah, you too. Full Collapse is an album that's near and dear to my heart. It, um, its impact cannot be overstated. It, it had an immediate influence on um, the emo and post-hardcore bands of the early 2000s. And that influence has continued. Um, there was a new generation of bands emerged about 10 years ago now. Bands like Touche Amore, La Dispute, Pianos Behind the Teeth. They kind of carry the torch for what Full Collapse kind of helped uh, bring to prominence. Full Collapse is a really influential record and that whole era of music continues to kind of its influence continues to show itself in interesting ways. And, you know, we've all kind of looked back on it and we've learned what parts of it were great. And we've kind of fixed some of the parts of it that weren't as great. And it's just, it's a really important time for music. And I'm really stoked to have you here to talk about it with us, Jeff. Yeah, no, it's, it's exciting for me to talk about it too. I mean, uh, all this talk of like Touche Amore and La Dispute and Thursday and the bands like that. I mean, it sounds like you'd have to be from Brooklyn and a vegan to know what that... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love those kinds of comments. That was um, great. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's really... Um, I think it's really exciting that you mentioned Stay Inside because it is incredible that now, you know, bands that came out 10 years after Full Collapse, like Touche Amore, La Dispute and stuff like that, they're now like the influential bands that have already influenced the next generation of bands, you know, cause about a decade is about a generation for a band. Right. So now it's like, you just get to see the next generation. That's great. It's really exciting. And it's wild to see. I mean, I'm sure your perspective is a little different than mine, but um, I mean, so when we talk about this soon, but you released uh, No Devolution kind of just at the 10th anniversary of full collapse. And yeah, same week, 10 years later. Right. And like, it felt, 
like such a, it felt like that moment kind of just like, that's when it ended, you know, like, and, and you and Thrice had kind of broken up at just the same time. And I just, I felt like that whole decade was a real clear, um, just kind of rise. And I don't want to say fall because that sounds negative, but you know, it kind of bookended. Um, and it's like with the Touche Amore generation, I don't know, it doesn't feel like it was as long ago to me as full collapse Not fell at all. in 2011. Yeah, not at all. I think also more changed in the decade between full collapse and Touche. We'll use those kind of, you know, between full collapse and no devolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was partly because nobody saw it becoming such an explosion. You know, nobody expected a band to be playing a basement one week and like on the radio on MTV the next week. It was just a really out of nowhere explosion for understanding a car crash and for full collapse. And then for all the bands in our circle, it seems like kind of all blew up all at once. So suddenly you had all these bands that wanted to be famous. So they started bands that sounded somewhat like the emo boom or whatever. Mm -hmm. And just kind of like, and it just kept going so fast that it, it just became something else by the end of the decade. And I think a lot of the original bands felt like, well, this isn't what I was interested in ever. How did I end up here? And so it took the new bands to go back to the basement, back to the, you know, like this is, for squats and, you know, uh, fire halls and places like that. This isn't about the radio. This isn't about MTV. And that was what that new blood gave it life again. You know, I think so that rise and fall, like you said, it really was crazy. And then the last 10 years have just been great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what makes that era so interesting to still look back on is like, it was just so unexpected. Like you, um, I mean, when Thursday started out, you were in like the new Brunswick basement scene. Like, and I imagine you wouldn't have thought when you formed the band that MTV was in the cards. I mean, we definitely only formed a band so that we could play the shows that I put on in my basement. It was like, well, we've got all these great bands coming through and you need a local band on every show or else nobody comes. That's the way basement shows used to be. It was like, mm-hmm. nobody goes to see the locust or at the drive-in or whatever. It's like they come to see their friend's band and then end up having their mind blown, you know? So it was like the more local bands, the better. Let's just start something. We'll play a couple songs. That was literally the only point of Thursday when we started. It was like, let's play a couple shows, play a couple songs, let's hang out. Let's give some people some places to sleep. And it'll be, it'll be fun, you know? And then, yeah, it got away from us <laughs> 20, almost 23 years later, sitting here talking about it and still being in a band with the same people is really right. surreal. So what kind of impact it, I mean, the, the New Brunswick basement scene is, uh, is so sort of legendary. Um, actually, the previous episode on this show, we had Mikey Erg and we kind of talked a lot about yeah. that. Um, so, I mean, you know, like with bands like Thursday and Lifetime and the Bouncing Souls and Saves the Day, like it's just become this thing that on a national and maybe international level people talk about. So what kind of impact did that scene have on, you know, you starting out as a musician? Yeah, I mean, so I, I remember getting to orientation for my first day at Rutgers, which is a state school in New Jersey, in New Brunswick and a few other places. But um, I got there and there were like five... I, I was wearing like a 108 t-shirt. I think I had like a Songs of Separation t-shirt and there was like an Ensign t-shirt and there was like maybe an H2O. You know, there were like... So like five of us hardcore kids found each other 
And me and the kid with the Ensign shirt, we became roommates and had like a dorm room. And first day of school, we're like, we're going to take over the, the student arts council. We're going to start bringing bands to Rutgers. So we went to a meeting and the first thing the head of the student arts council said was ink and dagger is banned and they will never play Rutgers. And we were like, you want to get out of here? Because <laughs> like, that's who we want to bring. We want to bring right. bands like ink and dagger to Rutgers. So we got out of there. The next year, we got off campus housing and started throwing basement shows like Lifetime and the Bouncing Souls had done before us. And, um, you know, Lifetime had a, a song, theme song for a New Brunswick basement. So it was like, you know, this was a thing that was happening. You could go see Sick of It All play with the Bouncing Souls in a basement and there'd be like 200 kids and it'd be insane. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, we want to do that, you know? And I think we took it a little more like we would do three shows a week. We would have like bands from DC like you and not you but we would also have like Zagoda and you and I played their last show in the basement you know all these bands that were really underground like uh, Reversal Man broke up in our basement you know things like that like where it's just like you know this wasn't we weren't trying to fit 200 kids in the basement we were trying to get 20 kids to come and right. have like the best time of their lives you know um we had a door off its hinges that we used for the merch table. And mostly back then merch was just trading zines. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like people weren't coming with like tons of t-shirts and stuff. So that was really like what the vibe was. That's how I got started. I just, I didn't invent anything, you know, me and my friends, we just wanted to be a part of what was already going on. You know, it was a beautiful tradition going on already in New Brunswick. And we were just like, wanted so badly to be a part of it, you know, and there was, I'm still friends with a lot of the other basements from around then, you know, Paul Hanley um, has worked at French kiss records and a bunch of other places. And he had a big uh, house that did stuff and uh, Gabe, Gabe from Midtown. Right. Also. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of friends that started back there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool how it's like kind of still thrived. Like, um, like screaming females, for example, kind of like kept that going, and then they got big and like probably introduced a new generation. And and definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you were writing Full Collapse, uh, again, I'm I'm sure you're you weren't thinking about radio, MTV, um, and I, you probably weren't even thinking it would become such a classic record. So what was the mindset going into that album? So we uh, we had put out a record on a, a local label called Eyeball, great label. Um, but also at the time, very small reach, very limited. Um, and we started writing some other songs and we didn't know what to do with these songs. But Alex, who owned Eyeball, heard them and was like, you got to get on a big, bigger label. Like this is this record's going to be so good. And we had Paris and Flames written, Concealer. We had like three songs written. He was like, this record's different. Like it's another level. You got to get out there. I have a friend that works at Victory. Maybe I can convince her to sign you. You know what I mean? So it's very much like he was looking for a home for us. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of like, well, victory, you know, that's like, like from New Brunswick, we have dead guy, you know? So it was like, that's, that's a good label. Like dead guy, legendary, you know, also Snapcase and stuff like that. Really cool stuff. Yeah, let's try and do it, you know? Um, so we all agreed we would drop out of school for one year and we would tour for one year and that was it. Then we'd all go back to school. So that was really it. It was like, let's do one record, see if we can play some great shows and have some fun on tour and really do it. You know, like that was it. That's what, that was the whole mindset. We had a the basement that we practiced in and we put mattresses up against the windows and tried to write songs. I still remember, you know, uh, writing Cross Out the Eyes in that basement. I remember, um, I remember I had my guitar with me at my 
like clerk clerk job. I had like a clerk job where I photocopied papers and you know, it was very boring, but um I snuck a guitar into the room and wrote the riff, the main riff from Cross Out the Eyes and got fired because like, I was like, you know, you can't be playing guitar at work, right? <laughs> I was like, I guess. I don't know. It never really occurred to me. Like, I'm only photocopying paper. Right. So, uh, so yeah, that was, I mean, it was just, you know, it's just a bunch of kids like working jobs and going to school and trying to, trying to play some music for a little bit of time. You know, we wanted to be part of the community. Like, it wasn't, nobody thought we were going to blow up or, or, or anything. And and to be honest, when the record came out, it was considered a failure. Like our label was like, you sold 700 records. It's been out for a month. Like nobody cares. And we were just on tour, on tour, on tour. And literally nobody cared. You know, we would come across the one crazy kid every night. They'd be like, that was amazing. And everybody else is kind of, kind of like, I don't know. Is it supposed to be like the cure? Or is it supposed to be like Snapcase? What, what is it? You know? And, uh, it wasn't until Saves the Day took us on tour that it started, you know, that was almost a year in, but it started really happening for us right then. So what, like, what did you guys kind of think in the, like when, when Understanding in a Car Crash was on MTV, like what was the reaction within the band? <laughs> it was just like, nobody really believed that it was real because we were one of four on a tour. You mm-hmm. know, we were the first out of four bands with Saves the Day. They were on MTV, like at your funerals on MTV. We're like, yeah, no, they're the band that's blowing up, not us. But by the end of the tour, it was like literally every venue we were in, if they had the TV on, you could not escape understanding in a car crash. It was on all the time to where my parents would call me and say like, it's all I see is your video. It's on every 15 minutes. I don't know what's going on. And in the space of like two weeks, it just, everything changed. It was like literally two weeks. We were on that tour for almost three months. But it was the last two weeks before Christmas that it just suddenly popped. And our booking agent was like, I'm going to book you a a headlining tour for next year. We had never done like a headlining tour. It's like, it's going to be in bigger venues than the Saves the Day. And it's going to be sold out before you leave for tour. And we're just like, you know, what do you say? Like, nobody cared about us three months ago at all. And now you're telling us we're bigger than all our friends who are in actual big bands that people like. You know what I mean? Like, that was, so that was, it was a pretty, surreal thing because it wasn't what we wanted. It was our second record and we were kind of like a year into our second record. Had no hopes and dreams of being famous, but all of a sudden it was a thing. It, we didn't know what it was, but it was a thing. Mm-hmm. Now you, you kind of said before, like at first people were confused. You mentioned like The Cure obviously being an influence. And, uh-huh. I mean, I, I think from my perspective, that record kind of just so kind of casually combines like a lot of different styles of music. I feel like there's screamo, there's metalcore, there's emo, The Cure. Like what were some of your big influences when writing that record? Yeah, I mean, you picked up on a lot. I think The Cure is a huge influence for me. And that so that comes through a lot in my voice and kind of like where I would push the clean guitars to go. But, um, you know, Steve, our guitar player, is super into Sunny Day Real Estate in Texas is the reason it's sort of like a a little bit more of like a plaintive, kind of open-hearted, emo-y stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, he was the one that brought that side in. And Tucker was always into like, he loved drummers, you know? So people like... um, uh, Stuart Copeland from the police. Like you can really hear that on understanding a car crash, a few other places, um, the clash, you know, drummers like that, like where there's like a different rhythm brought in yeah. than what you'd expect to be there. Um, but then Tom and I were super into, um, like really, 
scramsy. You know, we didn't call it scrams back then, but really screamy, right. emo, hardcore stuff. Um, you know, Tom from you and I and the assistant and all the amazing bands he's done since then, uh, screams on, uh, cross out the eyes and autobiography of a nation. And, um, you know, I mean, I tried to learn guitar to be in the assistant, like, you know what I mean? Like we were very close. We lived together. And so that was a big influence like Orchid, uh, Reversal Man, Seisha. Those were all bands that were like huge to me. And I always tried to push us in those directions. I think on war all the time, I got a little closer, but it, it's still never really like there was so much else going on in the music that that scrams element never came to the forefront. And, um, but it's all in there. Like you said, um, also Tim, our bass player, he was the one that was the most different from us. And, and you know, this is very insider baseball, like to the average person, right. they're going to hear like Hoover and Lungfish and like all this certain kind of like darker indie rock stuff and be like, yeah, what's the difference? But it's like to us, that was a pretty different scene. You know, yeah. back then it was considered like indie rock. Um, even though it was like dark and heavy. Um, so he brought that influence into the band. So we had a lot of stuff swirling around back then and we didn't try to pick a style. We tried to put it all together into just like, this is who we are. I was very like deeply into a bunch of postmodern ideas about writing. So I put that into, and it just somehow kind of turned into full collapse. It was mm. its own little weird world of a record. Yeah. And I think that sort of those unexpected influences combining, I think is a big reason it holds up so well. Mm -hmm. Like I think a lot of those bands who, not to diss anybody, but I think a lot of the bands who got really big, like a couple of years later, kind of honed in on like the very specific, like pop punk with screaming. Mm -hmm. And I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, like, yeah, like you listen to even like the verse and understanding in a car crash, like the drum patterns are not what you would maybe expect from like, I don't know, something you might hear at Emo Night. Like, it's right, kinda, you right. know, like it just, it, it kind of like makes, it's a record that like I loved when it first came out and I've gone back to over the years and I continue to hear new things. And I think like that, you know, like that's just sort of just going for whatever you liked was probably a big reason. I really, really appreciate that. Um, and, you know, I think it, there's something that people say to young bands a lot, which I think it's easy to miss it when you're young. But they're like, whatever you're into, check out all the stuff they're into because it's not, you shouldn't be copying a band. You know what I mean? You should right. be like, notice that like, oh, and this is where this comes from. And this is where this comes from. This is where this comes from. You know, if you ever hear a band trying to rip off at the drive-in, it's pretty obvious. They're so specific of what they sound like. But if then you were to go back and see all the different influences, you know, like, um, you know, like uh, the, the, the orchestra and stuff like that, like, there's so much going on. You know what I mean? So if you combine it in that specific way, of course it sounds exactly like at the drive-in. Unless right. you absorb all their influences and take what you like from it and leave the rest. Like you are just taking off one band style. Yeah. And I think Full Collapse is really a record that did that for, I mean, for my generation. Like I think it was, you know, similar to like when Nevermind came out. Like, and, you know, all of a sudden, like Nevermind comes out and then like, Sonic Youth is legendary and Dinosaur Jr. is legendary, right? And it's like, Kurt is just like, no, we're not that original. Like, listen to our fan, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. and I think like that was kind of something Thursday did. Like, I mean, because because of my age, Full Collapse was one of the first records I ever heard in this realm. I think like Full Collapse, Bleed American were kind of like my sure, introductions. Yeah. Bleed um, American was huge for us too. We used to listen to that all the time when it came Oh, out. yeah. And just as far as like the emo boom exploding, like I, I think... I'm going to sidetrack for a second. I think like when we're looking back on it now, I think 2001 
was like to steal like the Sonic Youth Nirvana thing, like the year that emo broke, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Um, like I think you had like Dashboard Confessional um, second record and then the EP at the end of the year with Hands Down, which like obviously blew up and The exactly. Middle and Bleed yeah. American and then your record. And I think between those three, you kind of get like all the different sides of everything that's about to like explode with right. MySpace and Warp Tour and that whole like, um, so anyway, so full collapse, I think, um, you know, that's one of the big reasons I listen to 90s screamo bands, you know, mm-hmm. like, like you and I, like Tom's on that record. And I'm like, oh, I love those screams on cross out the eyes. And you're like being yeah. the liner notes and it's like not a member of the band, you know? And like, then you go back and you're like, oh, their records are fantastic. You know? Yeah. So, so I, think- I love that. I love the records that are doors to another world. You know, it's like you start reading all the thanks lists and you find out there's all this stuff you never heard before. And that those are great records. You know? Yeah. And I and I think like again, like so um for on Brooklyn Vegan, we recently spoke to a bunch of bands about the influence of full collapse and um this new band who I love called For Your Health, they talked about finding you through Touche Amore. That's amazing. And it's just cool yeah, how the lineage yeah. is continuing to that's super cool. Yeah, that's super deep. I love it. I, I can't wait to hear that record. Yeah. So um, so when emo and post hardcore, whatever you want to call it, when it kind of exploded, like, and then there's this major label feeding frenzy. I mean, you were interviewed for Dan Ozzy's upcoming book, Sellout, which I cannot wait to read. Yeah. Me too. Um, and um, and yeah, I mean, like by 2003, you were on a major. Thrice was on a major. Um. I think like Glassjaw was on a major in 2002. Like it just like saves the day. We went to a major that lasted for like three days. Um, but, um, and I love in reverie for anyone. What a record. (laughs) Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, what, like, what was that like going from just, you know, like, again, you kind of talked about the instantly, like all of a sudden people care. So what was that like when all of a sudden major labels are courting you and all your friends? What I remember, there was this show, at a place called, um, it was like the Savannah or the Mirage or the like, it had some name like that, but it was in Long Island and it was in, I think it was in a strip mall. And they said it held like 400 people, but our tour manager used to click, stand with a clicker counting how many people they had to pay because they would always try to underpay you, you know? So they put in 800 people. So it was definitely twice as many people as should have been in there. And there was like, it was in the strip mall and it had like these like water uh, fountains behind the stage. And it was just like, it shouldn't have had a show in it. Definitely. Like, it was like the hotel, uh, hotel lobby or something it looked like. And it was so insane. And the uh, crowd was just spilling onto the stage and the stage was like almost going to fall down. It was like us taking back Sunday. It was like a bunch of bands. And when I went to the back of the room, people were like, yeah, I just saw all the major label heads in the back glaring at each other. You know, like Universal was over there, like talking shit about, you know, Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers is like talking about Island and Island was like, and it's just such a weird feeling. It was like, wait, they came to a strip mall in Long Island to see us in Taking Back Sunday, who at the time, like they had like a demo, like they weren't, they didn't even have a record yet, right. I don't think. And uh, it just seems so absurd. You know what I mean? Like, why are you guys slumming it here with us kids, you know? Um but that was going to be their next decade, basically, was signing all the bands of our friend circle, you know? So I guess it made sense, but it, it felt really weird. You know, you'd go to like a diner after the show and there'd be like a suit sitting there with you. 
Yeah, I'm like, I love that Paris in a car crash song. You know, just getting the names right. of the songs wrong. <laughs> and you're just thinking like, this guy wants to give us like a million dollars or something. Like he doesn't even know the names of our songs. This is this is crazy. What's going on? So that was kind of just, um, that was just a weird time. Yeah. You know, I, I think it brought the band a lot closer together because we felt very alienated from the outside world. Did you like as, you know, growing up in like a DIY scene, did you have hesitations about signing to a major? Yeah, none of us really wanted to sign to a major, but we were in a such a open public battle with our indie label who was treating us like so badly that we couldn't believe that a major label could be any worse. Mm-hmm. That was kind of that was kind of where we were at. Um, you know, all the Fugazi fans in the band had long ago felt like, well, that ship has sailed. <laughs> you know, we're on victory. There's no going back. We're not on Discord. So might as well just go somewhere where at least they seem to like us. Because Victory, when we handed in the record, they were kind of like, eh, mm-hmm. no singles. We we're like, didn't you just put out like Hate Breed and Snapcase? Like, why are you talking to us about singles? Like, don't you just want a good heavy record? So yeah, it was kind of like whatever hesitation we had, it just didn't matter anymore. You know? Mm-hmm. I know you and Victory had your issues, but um, when you were originally excited to sign, I mean, could you have ever imagined that Victory would become known for what they became known for? I mean, in the 90s, like you said, Hatebreed, Snapcase, Dead Guy, like, um, and then all of a sudden it's you and then it's Taking Back Sunday and then it's like Bayside and Hawthorne Heights and like right, all of a sudden right, Victory right. is like the poster label of like this emo pop thing. Like, did you ever see Victory doing that? No, never, never in a million years. It was a very strange thing to watch happen. But also, you know, once we were selling, like once Full Collapse had hit like 400,000 copies on this little tiny indie, it was pretty obvious that the guy was a businessman and he was just going to go where the money was, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but it was weird because it made us all sort of like a little wary of each other. Like I knew Eddie from Taking Back Sunday. The first basement show I ever did was a movie life show when Eddie was still in movie life. So I had known Eddie for a long time. And then suddenly everybody on the label saying, Oh, Taking Back Sunday is the next Thursday. They're going to the same studio, same artist is doing the album cover, same, you know, same this, same that, same that. And we're kind of like, why are they trying to be us? Right. Is what it felt like. That was from the label though. Like Taking Back Sunday always wanted to be their own thing. You know, they're much more of a pop band than we ever were. And I think the more pop they went, the better they were. Like, I think like second record on, it's like, yes, that's my favorite stuff. I like when they did like Make Damn Sure, I was like, this is a perfect pop song. It's like, so good. Like to me, that's like, that is the sweet spot for them. Like I know everybody loves Tell All Your Friends, but like I want them with the giant chorus that it hits me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so it was a little awkward because like the label was full on in like Thursday, you don't even matter anymore. We, we signed Silverstein. We signed Taking Back Sunday. We signed, you know, it's just like, okay, way to make us feel weird that like you're just going to put out the next Thursday and screw you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was, it was strange to see them become that from this heavy label. I mean, I remember when it was like Vegan Hate Edge was like the fi- right. victory brand, you know, like Earth Crisis, like the, the vegan beatdown. And like, I love that record too. I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying anything bad about them, but it was just a weird left turn for victory. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that Victory was the reason that Taking Back Sunday went in that same studio and they worked with Sal Villanueva like you guys did on your first three records. Yeah. Um and then they wrote that song with about with him in the title, which apparently he was offended by. Well, you um, know, the funny thing is that it's like, was that the reason? I don't know. But Victory would tell us it was. Okay. You know what I mean? So it just it just put up these weird walls between us. I I took I talked to Shane recently from Silverstein. And he was, I told him that. And he was like, is that why you guys were weird to us? And it was like, oh man, we didn't even realize we were being weird to you guys. But like, yeah, that's probably why we were being weird to you. It was like, everybody's telling us like, oh, it's like uh, Thursday, but the singer knows how to sing. He's not tone deaf. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, well, great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I'm going to go play a little music. We'll take All a right. short break and then we'll talk about a lot more stuff. Sounds good. Uh, we just heard uh, Firefly by Saves the Day off of uh, Stay What You Are, which is the album Saves the Day we're supporting when they took you out on your Soul Collapse tour. That was like the highlight of my night every night when they played that song. I yeah, that song. that's like my favorite song on that record. It's so good. At Your Funeral is good, you know, but Firefly, Firefly. could have been the hit. Yeah, um, that's the deep cut. Yeah, And then uh, Deadbolt by Thrice, a band who, uh, as you pointed out when you both broke up, had a very parallel career to Thursday. Mm-hmm. Kind of went to a major at the same time, kind of got like artistic. Same major. Yeah, same, right, <laughs> same eight island, right? Yeah. yeah. You kind of both like in the late 2000s went in like a weirder direction and then uh-huh. kind of broke up around the same time. Yeah. And then the last song was by a small obscure band called uh, My Chemical Romance, right. also from Jersey. Right. Uh, that record came out on Eyeball Records, which was the same label as the first Thursday album, that's and right. it was produced by you. And actually, that song I sing, <laughs> you sing on. on that yeah, song, yeah. right? Which, yeah. Um, so, what uh, you know? Tell us about producing My Chemical Romance. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was not something that I was like super. Uh, excited for a long time to do. Uh, I knew Mikey from parties at the eyeball house. I liked Mikey a lot. And he was like, you're going to love my brother. You know, G- he called him G all the time. You're going to love my brother, G. Gerard. Yeah. He's the best, you know, comic book artist. He's always home just working on comic books. So I was like, yeah, I want to meet this kid. I want to, I want to make comic books with him. That sounds awesome. So finally I met him at a party and he had this like broken guitar with like two strings on it that were both out of tune. And he'd be playing me the song. Like, yeah, we got this song and we got this band, me and my brother. And it was just like, I couldn't hear anything he was doing. And I was just like, okay. Also, this is a party. Like, I don't want to listen to you play an acoustic guitar with two strings. So I just kind of very unexcited, quite unexcited about the idea of doing something with them. But then I was like, what's the name of the band? He was like, my chemical romance. Okay. That's a great name. Like that's something at least, you know? And, um, and I saw a couple practices and really early on, I'd say they were very no effectsy. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, you gotta, you gotta make your own thing. Cause you're a creative person, Gerard, you know, like treat the band, like you treat a comic book, you know, draw a whole world for yourself in your head and then put it in the music, you know? And it was one of those things that the next time I saw them, he had done it so thoroughly that I couldn't believe it was the same band. Like it was, it was beautiful what he had made. And they gave me one song on a CDR because it was back in the day of the CDR and it was just vampires will never hurt you. And we left for tour and I put it in the stereo and the whole band was like, what's this? It's like, this is, this is Gerard and Mikey's band. And I'm like, this is kind of good. And by the end of the tour, they're like, turn it off if you play that song one more time. But I realized there was something special there. And I got really excited about getting home and making the record with them. And that was uh, a blur. It was like two weeks. It went by like that, you know. 
but I remember by the end of it, I remember giving them a pep talk because Mikey was like, you don't think we'll ever be as big as Thursday, you know? <laughs> and I was like, dude, I think you're going to be so much bigger than Thursday. It's not even funny. He was like, like how big? And I was like, good Charlotte big. You know, that was as big as right. I could imagine at the time. Like how big could a punk band really be? I guess, I guess good Charlotte, but you know, they just blew past every expectation for any, even a guitar with a yeah, guitar band at all. Right. At the time. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty wild thing to see happen. Um, but you know, just hearing that now, I thought, Hey, that's pretty good actually. You know, yeah, at the time I thought really it was raw, well. but sorry. You... No, no. I just thought it was really raw at the time. So it mm-hmm. sounds pretty good too. Yeah, no, it yeah. holds up really well. Um, and it's like, you know, it's, I mean, it's cool to hear that record, like in comparison, all this stuff that got so popular by them, you know, it's like it, um, it's just like kind of a little snapshot into like before they, you know, became like what we all now know them as. Yeah. They were like thrashier kind Mm -hmm. of and fast. Yeah. And also sort of had the thing that Thursday had, which was like, just jump from idea to idea, which also, you know, you hear in in deadbolt from thrice, you know, it's just, they're just jumping from cool idea to cool idea to cool idea rather than being like, what's the chorus? It's like, yeah. What chorus? (laughs) Yeah. That song is like, I mean, the structure of it was like, again, like, for me, a very formative song. It just kind of yeah. like made me rethink like what kind of music could be. Like it didn't have to go verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And like, just like the the ending of that song where it's all slow and it's like... Yeah, all slow yeah. and cave-in-y at the end. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. It's very it's cool. like, I mean, it was they, they were like... Um, to talk about Thrice for a minute, I feel like what they were doing was so interesting. It's like they were like caught between like like almost being like Metallica and okay. sometimes, you know, uh-huh, they had like uh-huh. some real thrash metal stuff Definitely and like, thrash, and then they yeah. were like also sometimes a pop punk band and it was like, and then sometimes they were just straight up metalcore. Um, Very California yeah. of them. Like, yeah, I would always say like, yeah, we're parallels from different coasts. Like we could never sound like that being from New York, New Jersey area. Like, but also like you could, you know, you're from LA, like you had to have some orange County in you. You right. know what I mean? Like that, that's what I hear when I hear it. it's like all these fast skate bands, you know, I hear it's like sh- they're shredding. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I definitely, I think that's true. Like, um, like Thursday and thrice really felt just kind of like, like parallels from an opposite coast. And when you put that split out and I think of three, uh-huh. where I think it was like for the workforce drowning was on one side and then they had, I can't remember, but a song from artists in the ambulance. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to butcher the title, the one with the moon in the title. Uh, but good, yeah, good I heavy mean, track. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was like it, it felt like a a real kind of just like a good little snapshot of like what was kind of happening. Like you know, um, yeah. So um, so but like I said earlier, like uh, you and Thrice both kind of and a few other bands, um, by the m- mid to late two thousands, kind of started to like depart from what like the we were kind of would call like you know like the I guess the emo and post-hardcore sound that was big with Warp Tour and MySpace and Hot mm-hmm. Topic. Like, I think um, with A City by the Light Divided, you started working with Dave Fridman, who mm-hmm. a lot of people know as a Flaming Lips collaborator. Sure, yeah. And you Mod did your life. last three records with him. And around that same time, you did United Nations, where you really tapped into, like, the screamo, scramsy stuff that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, what were you kind of thinking, like we need to let people know we're not this like, was that, or or is it just like, that was where the music was going and you ran with it or a mix. Definitely wasn't where music felt like it was going to me. Um, 
it was it was feeling like okay, a lot of bands had come into what we were doing and and picked up an influence and then started carrying it forward to a place that we just didn't like or feel comfortable with. Um, and I think that the natural reaction that we had to that was like, let's do something else. Like the thing that they're all taking from us, like it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel exciting anymore to us because it's, it's been taken in a different way, you know? And basically like we were very reactionary at the time. So it was like, you know, we ended up on a major label. What should we do? We should make our darkest, heaviest, weirdest record. Like, right. you know what I mean? We couldn't just ever go with the flow and have a good time. We were kind of like, just never wanted to be where we were. And I think that has, that speaks as much to our psychology as it does to anything musical. You know, I think there was just something about where, you know, there's difficult people in, in our bands, you know, and the singer is like an addict, you know, like the way my mindset works is like, if you like what I'm doing, then I need to change it. If you don't like what I'm doing, then I need to change it. If you, you know what I mean? Just Mm -hmm. never want to be doing what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, it was like, well, what are we going to do now? You know? And so that began like a real period of experimentation for a lot of the bands that were like us that just didn't want to be a part of the mainstream narrative anymore. And so like bands like Thrice and us were kind of like, and the thing that was cool then was we were, we had been going on a parallel track, but the directions that we split off in were like polar opposites. Right. You know what I mean? They went more like literary political and we went more like, like deep, deep introspective, you know, like, kind of spacey and and dark and sad (laughs) so how did you uh, initially get hooked up with dave fridman and what was that experience like working with him you know basically the label was like do you want to try something new you know you've been doing all your records with the same person and we're like yeah you know like let's try something new so we started auditioning producers and we talked to um rich costi was another big one he had done like muse and um Franz Ferdinand and some other big records. And, you know, basically Dave was just the one that was the most exciting and the one that felt like the biggest risk because he had just done the woods for Sleater Kinney. Mm-hmm. And I loved the record so much. And I was also like, but if our records sound like that, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's so chaotic. And like Thursday's already so chaotic. We need somebody to like smooth it out a little, you know? Um, so we went up, we visited him in Tarbucks up, up, up outside Buffalo. And, um, he was just, we could just tell he was one of our kind of people. He was just like, yeah, nobody wants me to make a Thursday record. They want me to make a cool indie rock record. So I'm going to do a Thursday record. Like that sound. We're like, oh, you're like us. So whatever anybody wants you to do, you're going to go the opposite way. Right, right. Let's work together and make something that everybody hates. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like our first thought. Um, but actually like, you know, it took us a little while to click and I don't think it fully clicked on. I, I love a city by the light divided. I think it's really good. I think common existence is by far our most misunderstood record, mm-hmm. but I think that the way that we worked and the way Dave worked came together on no devolution. Um, I don't think that we had fully gelled until that point. And then I think that record is a really beautiful culmination of like the way he makes soundscape and we sort of leaned back into like, everything doesn't have to be so heavy we can like lean into the soundscape stuff more. And it all started to kind of work together then. I 100% agree. I I mean, uh, I think what, you know, like your sort of mentality of like, I always need to do what I'm not doing. I think is what made for like, you know, such a consistently um, interesting career. Like every Thursday record is noticeably different than the one before it. Right. And I think No Devolution is like, 
I mean, I didn't see it coming. Like, uh, and it, it, it that like even though it was the third record with Dave, uh, in my mind, I'm like, that's the one with Dave because that sounds like yeah. the guy who made the Yoshimi yeah. working with the band who made Full Collapse. You know, like yeah, it took us a while to figure it out, but but that one, I really, I really love that record. I also think like it's weird to think about ten years later, mm-hmm. but like the hardcore scene hadn't started doing like shoegazy stuff yet. Right, it just wasn't a part of it. You know what I mean? Like nothing hadn't blown up like you know weekend all, all these bands that like embrace that so this was like a really weird record at the time you know yeah. what i mean like the first song sounded like a heavy version of like riot or something you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and uh, and the second you know the second song sounded like almost like it could be in a kanye west record or something um so it was like a it was a pretty it was out there for the time you listen back to it now it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. you know like because the rest of the culture has kind of changed in a similar manner i don't think I don't think that record influenced it because it was sort of a very quiet record. It didn't make a huge splash, but I do think it sort of was just slightly like anticipating what people were thinking at the time. And I think that happens in so much art. It's not even like, I'll put it this way. If full collapse wasn't a big hit, there would have been another record that was full collapse. That was very similar. And that would have been the big hit that changed everybody going in that direction. I just think these things bubble up in the collective unconscious and when you're really connected to that unconscious and you're like and you're in the flow of making art together and it's working you tap into that you know so if there was no thursday it'd be another thursday if there's no my chemical romance somebody would have been my chemical romance right so i i you know when i say like i think that record was a little bit of a head it just coincidentally in some ways mm-hmm. you know what i mean that, that that was where things went but we were all having the same kinds of thoughts that maybe life was getting a little more abstract or maybe a lot more of us were using heavy drugs i don't know but um there you go i'm sure you know like but as a listener of other bands like sometimes a band just makes that record and you're like oh you like made the record i was kind of feeling like needed to, you know what I mean? Like in the last 10 years, that's happened so many times. Yeah. Yeah. No devolution for me was one of those records. I, 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 um, as a longtime Thursday fan, uh, in the early 2010s, you know, it was, I mean, I'm into tons of different kinds of music, but it just, it felt like it was really sort of grabbing onto stuff I was listening to at that time. Like, I mean, if I try to remember back to that year, it was like, like St. Vincent put out Strange Mercy that year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, I think like that was when like James Blake was kind of starting to take off. And you had this like very like electronic, modern, rich sounding, weird pop music happening that was like, and you sort of tapped into that while also like inducing nostalgia for like a longtime Thursday fan. And it just kind of was like, oh, this is like the record I need, you know? Like, oh, that's and, cool to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And um, yeah. And I feel like, um, I, I would I can't speak for anyone else, but I would assume that it, it you know, uh, it holds up really well over time. I would think that people would hopefully latch onto it since you reunited, and then as you said, like the sort of shoegazy punk thing, like really exploded. Um, I always heard like kind of some deft tones in that record. Like, was that ever oh, influenced or, or just kind of coincidental? Well, I think all of us, um, you know, we had toured with the deft tones and those guys, we consider those guys friends. And, um, even at one point, uh, Chino had asked me to sing on Saturday night wrist, but we couldn't get it together, which is like a huge regret of mine, you know, mm-hmm. because I just, I think Chino's probably the most interesting singer in rock music for like at least the last 20 years. Like probably like he's just amazing. And, um, yeah, it's funny. I think like when I was a kid, I saw them a few times. 
uh, on adrenaline. So they sounded quite different back then. Right. Um, but I was just blown away and, and I've, I've never stopped admiring them. Um, but it's sort of a similar thing where it's like, we had a lot of the same influences. And when we got to know them, Chino would actually DJ after their shows. Uh-huh. He had like a little backstage room and he would DJ. And it's just like, man, I don't think I've literally ever seen a person with better taste in music. It was like the first time I heard Spoon, first time I heard like all this stuff that I was just like, what? Okay, you have to tell me what is this? Like, and what's this one? Oh, the knife? Okay, what's this one? You know what I mean? Just right, like, right. Just tell me like everything you're playing because it's amazing. Um, and that was like 2002. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or, or maybe three. So it was just, he was just blowing my mind constantly. And, uh, and and so that's cool. I, I think that's there's a reason why that it sounds like it. And I can definitely hear the the Deftones thing now that you bring it up. But I've never thought of that before for that record. But that would make them like 20 years ahead of all of us. So. Right. <laughs> I mean, White Pony is like... I mean, you know, I, people are classic. still catching up to White Pony. Oh, yeah. I think like with... Especially with the shoegazy punk thing. Like they... Deftones were like repping hum before anybody. Yeah, like. for sure. For sure. And I, you know, I was a huge hum fan back in the day, but it never occurred to me that it would make its way into like heavy music. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then that comeback record was like absolutely fantastic. Great. I thought. Um, yeah, they were like, I remember when they first um, reunited and it like, I was like, that's exciting, but it didn't feel like a huge deal. Mm-hmm. And then like, they just became the most legendary band like over the next six years. Uh, so I know what you mean. Um, so like uh, before we were talking about No Devolution, now it's been out for 10 years, just like Full Collapse been out for 20. Um, I think, you know, when, when you sort of, um, you did the reunion shows and then you kind of took a little break and you were like, we might, not go as hard on the touring anymore until there, it may be unless there's new music. And you brought up uh, Portis Head and My Bloody Valentine as examples of bands who just took their time and didn't put out a record just to put out a record and made sure that it would be great. Do you still think that could be in the future for Thursday? It's such a good question. You know, um, I think I've been a little, um, we, we have, we, I will say this, we've written a ton of stuff. And none of it is like, that's Thursday and we're going to put it out. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not impossible. Like mm-hmm. I keep telling guys, like one song, if one song turns out great, we'll put out a song. You know what I mean? It's like Thursday's already done what it needs to do. You know, we had our moment and people still, for some reason, love those records. And that's beautiful to me. Like I only want to put out something if it's going to be really f- cool and, and like add to that story, you know? Um, and until then, like, I love, I love working with those guys. Even when we write something that we're like, doesn't really do anything, does it? It's just kind of a cool part. It's cool. We got to do that together. That was fun. Let's put it in the file. If we ever need a cool part, it's over there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely don't rule it out. And, you know, people, you know, I remember Jeff from Portishead saying, we worked on this record the whole time, you know? And that was like at least 10 years, maybe 15 years. I think it was like something crazy. It was like 15, mm-hmm. 17 years. He said, we worked on it the whole time. And that to me, I was like, no way. Bullshit. <laughs> right? Like, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did. 
you know? I mean, third is my favorite Portishead record, so... It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm definitely not against it. I'm definitely not against it. I'm looking forward to the new My Bloody Valentine records too, right? Yeah, me too. It's supposed to be two, I think? It's what they say, but I always take everything Kevin says with a grain of salt. When he was like, yeah, they're not recorded yet, but they're coming out this year. That was what I was like, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I'm sure they'll be out this year no right. matter what. Um, and I think I, I, I mean, again, I, it's he. He's definitely holds back in interviews, but I think he said something to that similar effect that like the songs on MBV like weren't just written like in the two years before. I think like he had like sort of been working on it since Loveless, like in a way. Like I think I, I think he may have implied that some of the ideas dated back to sure. It's interesting though because I think a band like My Bloody Valentine. You could have all those songs finished, but that last twist of how they sound and how the drums are pulsing and the way like everybody's singing on it, like that's what makes it a My Bloody Valentine record, right? So it's like, I totally would believe that he had half those songs. But if they were just him strumming a guitar and somebody singing, that's not really... You know what I mean? So it's like maybe it was like a month of like, now it's all working and I figured out the last touch of each one of these pieces that I've been working on for 10 years. And then it's like the record's done, you know? Mm. So I always try to keep myself open to those last minute changes that can take a throwaway song and turn them into something that you're like, this is actually kind of cool and special and I want people to hear it. Right. Um, And I try to stay, you know, I try to stay active all the time, whether it was, you know, with uh, United Nations, the last record we did, or, you know, I have a new No Devotion record coming out this year that I think is, I'm really happy that I got to make it with my, my friends because it's yeah i think it's some of the best stuff i've ever done in my life so i'm really excited i'm excited to hear it (laughs) um do you feel at all like the more time that goes by without a thursday record that if you were to do one like the pressure builds like at first it could be like first record in four years and then it could be first record in 10 years and right like yeah certainly it feels like the door closes a little more every day you know what i mean um because the pressure in 2016 when we got back together or started playing together again or whatever. Cause it's like, does a band ever really break up? You know, it's, right, it's a weird right. thing to think of, but so we started playing again in 2016 and became friends again. And, uh, it was like, should we write some music? And we had a bunch of demos that were cool, but it was like, ah, oh, so much pressure. Like no devolution's a great last album. Let's leave that as our last album. And then it was like, almost like it got harder and harder and harder to work as time went. So now we're just kind of like, whatever, if we put out, a two song seven inch someday and it sounds like like a Fugazi version of Thursday just mm-hmm. just a totally like strip down whatever it's like that's fine like, who cares you know what I mean like I just want it to be good if it's good we'll put it out yeah do it's like fun. the the sunny day real estate thing they did like a split seven inch with Circa Survive and then disappeared again yeah like <laughs> sunny day is a great example because like they had broken up after that second record mm-hmm. and I went to see them uh, their first reunion show and they busted out a whole new album that I didn't even know was coming out. And it was just like, whoa, you know what I mean? It was just one of those things. And it was just so different. And all I thought was, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter to me that it's not seven, that it's not Jenna, that it's not like one of these classic sunny day songs. It's like a, you know, it's dreamy. It almost sounded like a Jeremy Unix solo record. Yeah. I didn't care. It was just so good. It was like, give me more of that. 
How it feels to be something on is my favorite. That's, Sunny, a, that's the best record. one now. Yeah, yeah. that's. I feel like I know diary is the most important. Like I know we right. need diary to even be having this conversation. Totally, like, talking about sure. emo in 2021. But like how it feels is those are like I feel like to me those are the kinds of records I look for. Yeah. Like I mean I I get that from like a city by the light divided and you know, devolution too. Like just the ones where like I don't know you. It's kind of going. I don't know how to put it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. These personal, <laughs> yeah, quirky. You know, it just either it makes sense to you or it doesn't. It's not like trying to make a statement. It's like, right. if you need this record, here it is. Right. Tell yeah. one of your friends about it. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's funny. It's like the between the, the parallels of your band and Sunny Day. It's like you both kind of have like the important record and then like the crazy artistic record, you know. And I feel like there's like this constant like war on Twitter of like what's really the best Thursday record, you know. Like even when people are talking about the full collapse anniversary, you have a lot of people being like, yeah, but like they really got good on War all the time, you know. know. Like, and and to me, I hated that record. Really? When we released that record, I was like so bummed because to me, it was such a depressing record. Mm. But now I look back and I'm like, well, look at the times. It's very you know what I mean? Yeah, it was very much what was going on. So, um, but at the time I was like, yikes, we have to play these songs every night. Mm. It's depressing. Um, but yeah, it's funny to me when I see people say that's our best record. I just think like, wow, if we had heard people say that back then, we would have been so psyched because we just felt like, I don't know. It was your most, pretty mad, right? <laughs> it was your most popular, right? It was, I think, a top ten record, like on the Billboard yeah. chart. Which yeah, I it think was is, top ten. Yeah, and it had I, a radio was, it, was signals over the air the big song. Yeah, yeah. I'm Weird. like, what? Weird. Yeah, right. I was. <laughs> yeah. It's always. It's like, did did the radio pick up on this? Like, is it like an ironic thing? Like, are they, like I know, I know. It felt very like. I don't know. It just felt like the whole thing was kind of off a notch, but somehow it was working. Mm-hmm. So we were like, all right. That's weird. K Rock is playing signals over the air, which talks about like how corrupt the radio is or whatever, you know? Right. All right. Well, it's a great song and a great <laughs> record. Um, I mean, for the workforce, Drowning is like, to me, like the opening song at a Thursday show. Like, when you guys yeah. open with that, I'm like, it's going to be a good Thursday show. Yeah, I agree. So, I the same way. Um, so, when you put out uh, No Devolution, uh, the, the one song on it, um, the last song, Stay True, you kind of like explicitly handed the torch over to Touche Amore. And like, I think, I think, um, the first time you played that song was at Starland. Uh, I was at that show and you on stage dedicated it to them, Pianos, La Dispute, and two of the opening bands, <clears throat> uh, Make Do and Mend and Aficionado. Um, and I feel like that was a real, just clear passing of the torch moment. Like Touche had just put out um, Parting the Sea, which I feel like is their full collapse. Like, Definitely. and they are a similar band, but they just keep going more into whatever they're going into and they keep making fantastic records. And I, I envy Touche. Can I just say real quick? Yeah, yeah. I envy their career path because career path, that sounds so stupid. Right. I, env- I envy their album cycle because. Um, I thought Parting the Sea was their full collapse and maybe it would end up as their defining moment. But then they put out stage four and it's like, wow, if they keep on putting out records this good, you're going to just be able to be like, yeah, they're just a really good band. They have like five classic albums. You yeah, know what I mean? And the new one is Whoa. Like maybe received even better than stage four. And I mean, the new one's amazing too. So yeah. it's just kind of, I think like, you know, they've had a slower build, but like, I do think that there's a good chance that they'll be it in the long run, a more important band than Thursday. And um, I love that. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's incredible. I yeah. Love it. Their, uh, their trajectory reminds me a little bit of Converge. Because uh-huh. I feel like Converge, like we're 
kind of given the chance to like keep building because like I, like when I don't mean this negatively, but when you got so popular and all eyes were on you, I feel like maybe it make it like changes. Like I feel like they were like in the 2010s when you know, 90s metalcore bands are mostly broken up or kind of faded away and not making records. They're, they're putting out like these gorgeous records. Yeah. And I can see, and I see Touche going in that kind of like, they just get more beautiful sounding on each record and yeah. they stay an aggressive heavy band. And, um, and it, you know, again, like their fifth record was like the first time, like Pitchfork gave them best new music, for right. example, which feels like a major thing. And like, it's yeah. the kind of thing that you, like you think a band gets on their first or second record right it's like that's when bands are like are They're most vital yeah, yeah. and then sure. it's like you never think like oh the fifth record is going to be the first time and i think nme gave it like an incredible review and i was yeah. like have nme ever even like reviewed this band like right right um but yeah did you do you feel like is that accurate at all do you feel like the fame affects or is that just me projecting? No, no, yeah, I think it can. I think it can, but I just think that they're just really smart, that they just keep mm-hmm. it really simple. They just keep making records and they keep doing what they do and they don't worry about whether it's getting bigger or smaller. They just just they just keep going. And um they've never had that moment where they've had to reckon with fame. Right. Which has been really good for them. Um and so they just keep getting a little bit bigger, a little bit more well known, even better. And to me, I think they're going to be an iconic band. You know, I think they're going to be like a Black Flag type band where it's like 20 years from now, it's just like, did you see them when they were doing their thing? You know, like, did you see them back then? It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> and you sing on their first record. Yeah. And um, Jeremy had known you for years before that mm-hmm. and the rest of Thursday. I, like, at, w- at what point did he send you like a demo or whatever and you were like this band is is like that that feeling you had with my chemical romance like at what point did that happen with touche amore so jeremy yeah jeremy had had like paris and which is like one of the first thursday fan site things and um and i had talked to him a bunch and we had gone record shopping together and he eventually told me oh i'm playing guitar in this one band at the time uh they're called thriller and i went to see him and i was like dude you rip you're a great guitar player like i wasn't I wasn't super head over heels about the band, but I was like, you're a great guitar player. That's cool, Jeremy. And then he's like, oh, hey, like years later, I got a band that I sing for. I think it's a little more up your alley. Let me sing it. And I was like, okay. You know, and I always listen because it's Jeremy and I liked him. Mm-hmm. But like I called him immediately after I heard it. And I was like, dude, you got to let me put out a full length. Like I flew out there and like, and sat in on them with a bunch of songs um, before they recorded the record. Just like they were trying to figure out if they had a record worth the material. And so we went through song by song. I made notes almost like pre-production. Like I made notes and I was like, I really like this change. I don't think you're all, I think you're actually playing in different time signatures. Mm-hmm. So when you hit that, you all have a different understanding of where you're landing. Cause you know, you're a certain amount of fast and chaotic right. drummers playing in three guitar players still playing in four and they don't even realize it, you mm-hmm. know? So it was like that kind of little stuff, you know, and I just came in and hung out with them and gave them the pep talk because they're amazing. Um, but right away, I loved what they were doing. I didn't know they were going to become important though. You know, right. like I didn't know what they had in them. You know, Jeremy has heart yeah. in a way that like not a lot of people do. So, yeah, no, I mean, his, his lyrics can really like hit close to home. Like he knows how to deliver those emotions. The first time this is so dumb. The first time I heard stage four, I knew it. 
loosely knew what it was about, but I don't know what I was thinking. I was like at the gym and I was lifting, listening to it. I just stopped and started crying in the gym. I was like, I got to get out of here. This is so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what right. are you doing crying in, in a gym with like a, a weight bench? Like this is terrible. Yeah. It's amazing how he just goes for it. Like he, he says the things I think a lot of people might be too afraid to, to say as bluntly as he does. And he doesn't gild the lily, you know, like for me, when I'm writing, I'm always very conscious of the fact that I like to say things a certain way. I have a certain style and I like to say that in that style. And he is very much like, I'm going to say something the way you talk to one of your friends, mm -hmm. but like in a real conversation where like you and your friends are like in tears. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. It's like, so that plainness of speech that he does makes his music more poetic. I really appreciate that. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so on that song, that song, stay true. Yes. You kind of like, you know, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's great. I mean, that, um, you kind of had said like, I, I want these bands to not make the mistakes Thursday made. Like I want them to stay true to themselves and where they come from. And you feel like they've probably all done that. Right. The yeah, no, I do. I think they've all, they've all made their own mistakes, which are different and new and fun. And I also think it's sort of now that I'm, you know, another 10 years older, I think it's really funny uh, that I would even presume to know what kind of mistakes they can make or that they would even listen to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I think in some ways that song just makes me smile because it's like, oh, I was still young and naive. Right. You know, I was like, I was like the wizened old teacher handing down wisdom, but I was still like a dumb young kid that didn't know what the hell he was talking about. So I really like that song. I, I like, I like most art for reasons that the person who made it didn't see coming, you know, mm -hmm. like I like full class because it sounds so innocent and so, so naive. And so like, just like a bunch of sweet kids who don't know anything. Like, I love that quality of that record. And I love like stay true because it's like, you don't even know what's going to come next. You don't even know how crazy the next 10 years are going to be for you and how much you're going to go through, you know? Um, so I, I appreciate that about it. And it's very funny to me that I tried to give any wisdom at all to <laughs> people who probably were already more wise than I was. Well, I do think it was, I don't know. I, I think it was, um, you definitely helped put those bands on. And I think it was like, a, a, if anything, it was a really nice moment. Like it, it felt like the torch was handed and they carried it. Well, I think they've carried it so well. Yeah. Uh, they've made us look much better in retrospect. <laughs> I really do believe that like, because of the wave of stuff that's going now, giving us the love that they give us, uh, people have reconsidered that. Oh, I guess Thursday was important. You know what I mean? Like even this site, like, I don't know if you remember Pitchfork gave chorus a uh, full collapse, a review that said we sounded like Chicago with Ray Capo singing. Um, or so, or at the drive-in without the Afros might've yeah, been one of them. Like yeah. Too. Yeah. Like they really were like, man. And like, Oh man, I, <laughs> I, I've read that review so many times, like hate read it. Like, <laughs> like no offense to like the writer. Cause I know what it's like, sure. like I've, I'm sure I've written like reviews I'm mortified of now, you know, sure, yeah. uh, but, um, but like at the end he was just like, yeah, you need to chill out basically. Like, and I'm like, no, that's why it's so good. <laughs> it's like, like, yeah, yeah, you like we, out. like, what do you think young kids are looking for? Like, you know, like the whole, like the kind of, detached irony that has gotten very cool in like the critically acclaimed world of indie rock. Like it's not what 12 year olds or like, four, yeah. you know, like you know, we, we need like, like young, uh, like people at an impressionable formative age, like need the, the singer who's like, Hey, like I got your back. Like, it's going to be cool. Here's some wisdom. Like you'll be fine. Like I'm telling you what you're going to run into. Like, and, and the lyrics on full collapse, um, 
uh, as I sort of wrote when I looked back on the record on Brooklyn Vegan recently, like I think they hold up so well because like so many of the bands at that time were just like these bitter ex-boyfriend lyrics. And, yeah, we used um, to call it ex-boyfriend core. Yeah, yeah. And like you, you're talking about like, I mean, there are songs about like LGBTQ rights and like songs about, you know, losing loved ones and like, um, just like stuff that matters and that continues to matter over time. And that like, as we as listeners like grow and learn more, like that record continues, I think, to have messages that resonate. And you don't listen back like, I know every word. I love the songs, but maybe he shouldn't have said those things about that girl who didn't like him. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but uh, but yeah. So you know, when that record again, like now, it's this iconic classic record. And when it came out again, like Pitchfork trashed it, and I, I don't know what other reviews. There said, were a but, lot um, of reviews that basically said something to the effect of, "If you want to be cool, guys, you're going to have to learn X, Y, and Z." Right, and we we're like. We're never going to be cool. What are you talking about? Like, do you hear what we're doing? Like, there's no cool here. Like, we're not trying to be cool. We're not going to be cool. Like, that ship has sailed. Right. So, um, it was, it's kind of funny to look back on it though, too, because this stuff that was cool at the time, so much of it is kind of made, kind of like, oh, it's cringe. Now it's cringe. You know what I mean? I don't want to think that we, we thought that was cool at the time. So, um, so yeah, overall, I feel all right. I feel pretty vindicated, probably more than I deserve as a very imperfect person. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and um, I think you know, like the lack of coolness is one of the reasons. Like, I feel like you know, punk music, like Umbrella Term, always appeals to people who feel a bit outsider. And um, but one of the things I wanted to ask about was um, like, well, how did it feel to you as a band? Like, you're on the rise. You all of a sudden got this big record, this big single. And then like the music press is like the strokes are saving rock. And like, and all of a sudden it's like the New York city scene and it's like Interpol and yeah, yeah, it's all bands I love, but like, it's this narrative that like rock was almost going to die. And then all of a sudden, like it was saved here in New York city. And like, for me, I'm like, wait, what do you mean? Like, but you had like bands in New Jersey and Long Island, like yourselves and taking back Sunday and Glassjaw and the movie life. And, and, you know, you had like, Deftones and System of a Down kind of doing like the crazy alternative metal thing. And I just had so many great rock bands. It didn't feel dead to like teenagers. Um, like, was that weird hearing like that rock was being saved by these other bands? Like that, you know? Honestly, it wasn't weird at all because okay. we very much didn't uh, identify as rock music at all. And in some ways I was kind of like, don't bring it back. Like, I was like, yeah, of course the strokes are going to be big. The guy's like dad owns a modeling agency. Like this is, uh, this is what rock and roll is. And this is why like, I've always hated rock and roll. I never like Motley Crue or the LA Guns or anything. And you know what? I I respect all that stuff now. And I respect the strokes and I res all that stuff. It's all good. It's just not for me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not what I'm interested in. For me, I'd rather like subvert rock and roll, kill it dead, like make something else. You know, uh, that's just what I'm interested in. So I was never like... What about us? I was like, yeah, we're probably going to lose. <laughs> Looks like rock and roll is coming back. You know what I mean? Okay. It's going to be like cool guys in leather jackets. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be working at a kitchen store or a gas station between tours. And like, that's fine with me, mm. you know? Um, so, but, you know, I really did like a lot of the other stuff that was coming out. The stuff that was lumped in with saving rock and roll. Cause to me, like Interpol, it's like, it's not rock and roll. It's like a, it's like a goth band revival. You know what I mean? They're cool. I love this band. And right. Like, yeah. You guys are like art. 
You know what I mean? Like it's like art, art music. Like I love DAS. You know what I mean? So when I would see them all kind of lumped in together into that narrative that I remember so well, you know, the return of rock and roll. I just think like, really? Those bands are all so different. You know what I mean? TV on the radio is nothing like the strokes. What the heck's going on? Um, but also like at some point I realized it was just a cool kids club that I didn't belong to. And I was fine with that too. You know what I mean? Like I actually know a lot of people from that scene and we're friends, but we don't try and go on tour together. Right. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, and yeah. of course, Interpol's original drummer was in Seisha, which right. I feel like is the topic of many Twitter conversations. You know? I know. We love stuff like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like the, the Trojan horse that mm-hmm. has like the secret level plane guy in the, in the band. Um, and I guess for me, like when I say rock, I kind of just mean like guitar based music. Like, oh, totally. I, I, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like I, I, I would look at, Again, like when I was when I was getting in to music in that time, like bands like Thursday and bands like Interpol and the AES were all great bands. Like, and they were all like you know somewhat derived from punk, and it made me feel like I had my own music. It wasn't my parents' music, you know. Like, um, and yeah, I mean, it's just so yeah. To me, like when I was like only later did I realize the narrative sure. that had existed at the time because I wasn't paying attention. I was just listening to bands. Of course. And yeah. I would like turn on like MTV2 and it'd be like Rock Countdown. And it'd be like The Strokes and then Interpol and then Thursday and then like a new metal band, you know? And like, right. and it would just like, I was like, oh, there's like so much different stuff in rock. And then like years later, I was like, oh, the music press thought there was like one thing. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, sure. Well, I was also a lot older than you were. And like, I think mm-hmm. I had an agenda that is very... It's not important to most people who listen to Thursday, you know? So for me, it was like, I want to like go against the narrative of like what a rock band should be. And I want to like humanize people and just make it like, you can play music too. Like we don't need to stand on a stage. I remember how much bands used to hate us because I was like one of those people, like let's sit up on the floor in front of the stage Mm -hmm. before we got too big where it was like, I think it was like, um, I think it was like the Fireside Bowl in Chicago was like, you can't sit up on the floor. Like the show is sold out. There will be nowhere for people to stand. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, stop being pretentious. Okay. The Fireside tells you to stop being pretentious. Stop being pretentious is what I realized. But like, I had this whole idea of like, you can undo the narrative and you can go against, like you can subvert corporate America and you can, you know, I had all these things that I thought we'd end up doing. And, you know, half the time we would just reinforce stereotypes of, you know, of like what commercial music is Mm -hmm. instead of like undermining it in any way. And it's something that like, I've had to learn a lot about over the years, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was what I was interested in at the time. And uh, so there's no reason anybody would think Thursday's not a rock band, except that I was like trying to do everything that I could to like secretly behind this, the scene sabotage the whole idea of like masculinity and, and corporate, you know, sexuality and uh, all this stuff that was going on time. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I had an agenda. What can you say? You know, Uh, it didn't always come across a lot of the time. It was just like, yeah, it's a rock band playing on the radio. (laughs) Right. So I mean, it was, they kind of like coexisted. Like yeah, you could like you could be a casual listener who like likes understanding in a car crash. Totally, and then yeah. you could also like just absorb the whole thing. And um, on a similar note, did um, did you ever think that emo would be the thing that like teenagers would latch onto so aggressively in the two thousands? Like, because there was the whole pop punk boom. There was like, well, Nirvana got big, and then it was like, then it was Green Day, and then it was sure. like Blink One Eighty Two, and it's like the super TRL, like, and I, and I like all of those bands, so I'm not dissing the TRL thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, some but, great um, stuff in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, but then all of a sudden it was like these 
darker bands like and that just like like it and then the word emo like started like all like blink 182's i miss you like counts as emo according to like certain djs across america you know like and and like the killers got lumped in eventually like did you like did you ever see like like in the 90s emo was like selling out like selling 100 tickets a night at best right like yeah i mean it's unexpected to say the least and i think emo taking the place of like the when I was a kid and people be like, Oh, she's goth. Mm-hmm. Like that's like what emo is now. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a much looser connotation than, than it, than it was. You know what I mean? It's like, I remember when I was a kid, people being like, yes, yeah, Cindy Lauper's goth. It's like, not at all, but okay. You know what I mean? Like she started a new AV. So like, sure, just lump it all into goth. Um, and I think like emo is very much like that. The fact that it became the dominant it is like the dominant cultural thing of the last 20 years is so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm into it. Like, it feels like we accidentally like won. <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean? Um, yeah. I always liked when people would ask, uh, my chemical romance, if they were an emo band, cause you know, just like grunge, mm-hmm. all the emo bands were like, we're not an emo bands. Right. You know, right. They'd be like, we're not an emo band. We're post hardcore. But Gerard would say, uh, well, I shit nautical stars, so I must be in an emo band. <laughs> and I just thought that was like the best answer for it. It was just so over the top and so like emo in a way, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and it was like also not denying it. He was just like embracing it and being absurd with it. I just always thought that was great. That is funny. And I feel like even in that era, like emo and goth became interchangeable all of a sudden. Like, like there is, there is, you know, like there are people who are like, what are you talking about? Goth is like the cure and like joy division. And like, goth is not like, you know, AFI and my chemical romance. And like, but it was just like, it took off. And, yeah. um, and I've always wondered like, if part of that was like, you know, bands like Thursday, like you named a song Ian Curtis and you claimed the cure as an influence. And then the cure, like, Robert Smith sang on that Blink-182 record and then they did a record with Ross Robinson. And took and us was, on tour. And, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And like, and I was like, maybe the cure, like, fuck it, like, lump us in with that emo stuff, you know, like, which like would totally make sense for them. But I think they realized, like, here's a whole generation of bands blowing up that are like, worship you. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, let's check out what they're about. You know what I mean? And I get it. Because like, I'm, I feel that way now. You know what I mean? It's like, let's check out the bands that like us. What's going on with them? Hey, so that was our interview with Jeff Wrigley. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again to Jeff. Thanks to Vans. Subscribe to the Brooklyn Vegan Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep up with us 24-7 on brooklynvegan.com. And stay tuned. We have many more episodes on the way.